Lasso. So this morning we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. You recall that yesterday, in terms of the different types of suffering or dimensions of suffering, we tended especially to that which is most obvious to human beings, animals, really all sentient beings, and that is literally it's called the suffering that the suffering that is suffering, or the suffering of suffering, or more in, in more ordinary English we can call it blatant suffering. It just feels bad. So whether it's physical pain, whether it's mental distress, we all recognize it. All sentient beings, you don't need you don't need any special wisdom or anything like that. It's obvious. Among the and so, in, in terms of compassion, of course, we would include that. May we all be free of blatant suffering of body and mind. Among the three root poisons of the mind, the one that strikes me as being most directly related to this blatant suffering would be, of course, hatred. Hatred or anger. And that is, hatred and anger is always a response, invariably. It's a re- response to something that we don't want. Either we're getting something we don't want, or we aren't getting something we do want. But either way, we're dissatisfied. But we're not simply dissatisfied. It erupts, so the dissatisfaction goes almost like a volcano. It's dissatisfied, then boom, and it, goes, and it blows up. Like a, like a pot, of, pot of boiling milk just spills all over the place. It's, in terms of afflictive anger, and there is such a thing as non-afflictive anger, but for the time being, let's just focus on the mental affliction it really is a symptom of, of an inability to cope with reality. It's not a symptom of strength. It's a symptom of inability, of weakness. That here's a reality, you're not able to cope with it. Instead of simply dealing with it, you erupt into a mental affliction. And it hurts. It feels awful. And the stronger the anger, the worse it feels. So quite clearly, directly related to blatant suffering, but then in terms of remedies, what can we do? What can we do just to overall decrease the amount of blatant suffering in the world out of a spirit of compassion for ourselves, which we call renunciation, compassion for others, which we call compassion. But what, we, what, what can we actually do you know, that's practical, that will have an immediate effect in terms of alleviating, if not completely dispelling, well, at least let's start by alleviating the suffering the blatant suffering that everybody can recognize. And among the three higher trainings, the three trainings of the Buddha, that really these, these are the structure of all the Buddha's teachings, Shravakayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, you name it, ethics, samadhi, with all the richness of that term, and then wisdom, that really does pretty well cover it. Bodhicitta fits into samadhi. The four measurables fit into samadhi. A lot fits into the samadhi category, right? And so ethics, among those three, the core principle is so simple and it's practical. And that is, as we wake up each morning, just have with the aspiration, at the very least, may I do no harm. May I not inflict any unnecessary or unhelpful injury. A surgeon inflicts injury in order to be of greatest benefit. Good. Parents sometimes must scold their children. They don't like it, but it's for their, better, for their, for their, for their well-being. Good. So those are necessary. But so much of the injury that we bring, the harm we bring to the world and ourselves, is not necessary. It's just coming out of mental afflictions. So bottom line, ahimsa, may I live a nonviolent life, having that kind of prime directive, you know? And then when there's the opportunity to be of service, when I can be, do some good in the world, then I will, I will rise to the opportunity. There it is. That's the whole of ethics. Everything else is commentary, right? Well, if we all did that, let alone religious belief, be a materialist, an atheist, be a communist, be a, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Christian, whatever. That didn't require any metaphysical background there. right? And if we did that, this world would be a radically different place. So I think it was in the conversation perhaps well, with, with somebody who wrote a note. Uh, and that is, oh, I feel I can do so little. Well, you can do an awful lot in your little tiny corner of the world and if all seven billion of us did that little tiny bit in our corner of the world, it really would transform the whole planet. And that's with no meditation, no, nothing higher, no bodhicitta, no four immeasurables, no wisdom, no nothing, 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 just being ethical. It would transform a lot.
So now we move on. And today we'll again turn to the meditative cultivation of compassion, but this time attending to a dimension of suffering that is simply not obvious, that's invisible to many people, including many people in the mind sciences and clinical psychology and so forth. It's not a judgment of the whole tradition at all, because it's so diverse, uh, but it's a dimension of suffering that's just not visible, not obvious to many people. It's called the suffering of change. Literally, it's called the suffering of change. Well, again, the, the term itself can be a, bit, a little bit misleading, as if the very reality of change necessitates suffering. It doesn't. It doesn't. Right? So what's up with change and suffering? Oh, it's attachment. It's attachment among the three mental afflictions. What's the chief culprit? What's the most directly related to this so-called suffering of change? It's attachment. And it's especially attachment, the kind of attachment that grasps onto the impermanent as permanent. It sounds very abstract and maybe philosophical. But the clinging, the grasping, the mental affliction of craving and attachment, of greed. And as I've mentioned before, when we experience it, wanting something desperately to win a lottery or to have any type of pleasure in this desire realm, for example. That very aspiration, oh, maybe I'll get it, maybe there's some happiness in that. Maybe I'll get it, maybe I'll get it. Or if we do get it, we get the new car, we get the new relationship, we get the new something, then, oh, I've got it. Happiness. Happiness totally wound up in, wrapped, bound, all up in attachment. But it feels good. Oh, I like it. I'm so glad I got it. I heard a, a, very, a man who's quite now a very prominent uh, politician in America. And this is a direct quote. He said, when I was a boy, I thought if I could be rich and famous, I'd be happy. And boy, was I right. (laughs) Direct quote. From a Buddhist perspective, congratulations, you have our deep sympathy. (laughs) Because you are totally immersed. You are drowning in the ocean of samsara. You have completely conflated attachment with genuine happiness. And you're completely deluded. And you're enjoying it. (laughs) Which means you're really, for the time being, hopeless. Just the time being. That too will pass. That too will pass. There will come a point in your life where where your wealth and your fame are not doing it for you anymore. When you've been diagnosed with a disease you didn't want etc. Now, how is it? Boy, does that make you happy? Just wait. It's, it's, it's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. That's it. So attachment. It feels good. Just like soda pop, your favorite soda, laced with strychnine. Tastes great until you get the after effects. Not so nice. Among the three higher trainings, what's a direct antidote? What's the most direct antidote for attachment, that mental affliction? Oh, you guessed it. Samadhi, right? Samadhi. Among the five obscurations, what's one of them? That attachment, that fixation on the bounties of the desire realm, right? And what's the direct antidote among the five jhana factors? Unification of the mind. That's samadhi. Boom, head-on collision. One of those is going to give. If they have a head-on collision, either your samadhi is going to fall apart. I think you've experienced that on occasion. (laughs) Or your fixation on hedonic pleasure is going to fall apart. But one of the two is going to fall apart because they cannot coexist. So get a good big Mack truck to drive into the VW of your hedonic fixation. A Mack truck of samadhi to smash, you know, the little Yugo of attachment. Otherwise, it will be the opposite. Chugga, 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 up the, up the hill with, up the hill with shamata. Whoa! <laughs> I just got smacked, got became roadkill, you know, from all my attachments to samsara. Okay. So samadhi, samadhi, poor samadhi. If samadhi were a person, I would feel a lot of sympathy. Poor samadhi, especially in Buddhism. I mean, in Hinduism, samadhi, hey, 
if you're not if you're not into samadhi, you're not a good Hindu. You're not practicing yoga. I mean, it's all about samadhi. You can't just say I'm following yoga tradition. I mean, really, yoga, not just doing some asanas. No, the samadhi is there. I mean, yeah. But in Buddhism, it's the second child. You know, it's the second child. It's the one in between. You know, samadhi. You know, Shila, samadhi. Pratnya, you know, pratnya. I mean, that's the culmination, right? And so in the Zen tradition, even though the word Zen comes from Chan and Chan comes from Jhana, and Jhana is what? Jhana? Uh, nevertheless, especially in the modern Zen tradition, Samadhi. Samadhi. Whether it's in the Zen tradition, this modern Vipassana tradition with the whole emphasis on momentary Samadhi, or whether a lot of Nyingma teachers nowadays, eh, Samadhi. A lot of Galupa teachers nowadays, eh, Samadhi. I think there's something common there, and I'm going to call it, I'm going to give it a new name. Ready? I coined it this morning. It's the Brill Cream approach. The Brill Cream approach to, to, to Samadhi. Now, only Americans of my generation, and Patrice being one of them, will have a clue what I'm talking about. The Brill Cream approach. Okay? Americans will know this. Nobody else will know it. Brill Cream, back in the 1950s. Patrice, do you remember the, the slogan for Brill Cream? Does anybody remember? I do. A little dabble do you. A little, <laughs> a little dab. A, a, little, a dab is just a little, like that, just a little squirt. A little dab will do you, will be, will be enough. The Brill Cream approach to Samadhi is a little dab will do you. <laughs> an awful lot of Zen go for that. Oh, who needs Shambhata Samadhi? We're practicing Zen. We're just sitting. The Nyingmapas, who needs samadhi? We are Dzogchambas. Vajrayana, who needs samadhi? We are practicing steady generation completion. Gulupas, who needs samadhi? We practice Lamrim. But Lamrim without Shamatha Vipassana is foreplay with no union <laughs> of samadhi and of Shamatha and Vipassana. It's all foreplay. I mean, what was all that drum roll about? The renunciation, the bodhicitta, was for what? To go back into more renunciation and bodhicitta or to finally have union of shamatha vipassana, which is the grand culmination. It's the flowering, it's the fruit. And to say, I'm, I'm a lamrim practitioner, but oh no, we don't do shamatha because we do discursive meditation means you're not a lamrim meditation. What did you learn? Forget how to read when you got two-thirds of the way through? Suddenly your mind just went bloop like a dead fish on the sand? Why do you call yourself Lamrim practitioner? Why do you call yourself a Galupa if you're not following the teachings of Tsongkhapa? There is a gold standard here. It's hard to find here in the modern world. So a little dabble do you, whether you're going belly up on the Pali Canon, where the Buddha taught the jhanas so frequently, never once mentioned momentary samadhi, let alone that that was sufficient. So you're abandoning the Pali Canon, with that. Or how about the Mahayana, whether it's Zen, whether it's Chan, whether it's all the four schools of Buddhism that take the Brill Cream approach to Samadhi. So, oh, no, we don't really need that. You know. Just go to Dzogchen, just go to Lamrim, just go to state regeneration completion. Or, oh, you don't worry about Samadhi, you'll achieve it in state regeneration. Good. How many of your students have done that? How many students, how long have you been teaching? How many of your students have achieved Shamatha by way of state regeneration? Please, I would really line them up. We'd love to meet them. If it's only talk, then What's the talk for? You know, is this Dharma? So Mahayana teachers who take the Brill Cream approach to Samadhi are missing out something. They're not only missing out on something, of, namely Samadhi, they're also missing out on something called Shila. It's called ethics. It's called Mahayana ethics. It's called the 46 secondary precepts of the Bodhisattva, and I will read a few of them. If you break these, you're breaking a precept which, from the Mayan perspective, is more serious, heavier, karmically, than breaking any of the Pratimocha precepts. So what's one of them? Not seeking the means for achieving samadhi. That's one of the bodhisattva precepts. If you are doing that, you're breaking the bodhisattva precept. Okay. How about another one? 
not ridding ourselves of the obscurations that prevent the achievement of dhyana. Those are the five obscurations. How about that? Okay. Let's take one more. Forsaking the shravakayana. That was three out of 46. That's a pretty good percentage. Forsaking the shravakayana. You know those Hinayana people. The Hinayana path. No, no, we're beyond that. We're practicing Dzogchen. We're practicing, no, no, we're Vajrayana practitioners. We don't need that shravaka. That's for inferior people, not people like us. That's three out of 46. Ignoring those? And you still call yourself a Gulupa? Bullshit. You call yourself Nyingmapa? Bullshit. Read a really wonderful text by Dujan Rumaji on the three sets of vows that includes Pratamoksha, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. You think he skipped those? Because he's a Dzogchenba? He's a Dzogchenba. He's a real Dzogchenba. Not bullshit Dzogchenba. That just wants to do, say something popular. That's really tragic. Really tragic. So how many people are just abandoning Buddha Dharma to find something they find easier, that's not so challenging, or that sells better? So, compassion for all those who call themselves Buddhist and yet sabotage the Buddha's own teaching. Compassion. Compassion for ourselves as we fall into the pit of attachment, clinging, craving, and so forth and enjoying it. Let's practice compassion. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states and calm the conceptual turbulence of the mind for a little while with mindfulness of breathing.
now as we venture into the cultivation of compassion, without any sense of superiority, let's attend first inwardly. To the extent that we ourselves are subject to this mental affliction of craving and attachment, and review in your own life, is it true that when you fall into that habitual pattern of craving and attachment, it invariably leads to suffering? Is that true or false? Let us not leave it as simply a religious belief. It may be awkward to say that we feel compassion for ourselves, but it's not at all awkward to arouse an aspiration, to be free of the suffering of change, which is suffering because of the domination by mental affliction of attachment and craving. So if you will arouse this aspiration with each inhalation, May I be free of that whole dimension of suffering that arises from attachment and craving. And may I be free of its underlying causes. Imagine, if you will, that dimension of suffering and its cause, of craving, attachment, as a darkness veiling the pure and luminous nature of your own awareness. And with each inhalation, imagine drawing that darkness in, into the orb of light at your heart, and imagine it dissolving there without trace, with every in-breath.
and turn your attention outwards. And call to mind, if you will, someone or some group of individuals who you can see with your eyes of wisdom are suffering because of craving and attachment. Whether or not they know it, whether or not the symptoms have manifested, they are right now subject to the suffering of change. And rather than having any sense of superiority or condescension, arouse the compassionate aspiration, may you, like myself, be free of this dimension of suffering, free of its causes of attachment, May we all apply our, ourselves diligently, enthusiastically to the remedy, the cultivation of samadhi with all the richness of that term. May we be free. Breath by breath, imagine each one becoming free. As you let your attention roll from one person to another, one group of people to another, one realm of existence to another,
release all appearances and aspirations and let your awareness rest in its own nature. Now, so the 20th century was the worst century in the whole history of Buddhism. I think it's a historical fact. It started in the 1930s in Mongolia. That's where the first symptoms started to show up, where something like 1,200 monasteries in Mongolia, tens of thousands of monks, demolished, crushed by the Stalinists who had taken over Mongolia, killed maybe 30,000 monks, just shot them. That was just the opening salvo to the Holocaust that's hit Buddhism throughout Asia. It's still continuing, thanks to the policies of the Chinese Communist government, in China as well as Tibet, not just Tibet. Russia also, North Korea also. Wherever communism spread, it just, it was the Nazis to the Jews. It was to Buddhism and all forms of Dharma. One final solution, wipe it out. If you think something's poison, as Mao told his only Dalai Lama, religion is poison, what do you do with poison? Eradicate it until it's gone. So it was an awful century. And we're tremendously fortunate that there are you know, qualified scholars and contemplatives, practitioners from these different traditions, from Mongolia, from Southeast Asia, from Korea, from Tibet, who survived the Holocaust. So we're tremendously fortunate. But it's almost as if Buddhism was dealt what could, might be a lethal blow a lethal blow. That was pretty savage. So it looked like it could be go either way. It could either just perish or with a lot of emergency care. It could survive. It could get robust again. It could happen. Right? But those Buddhist teachers who say the time of realization is over, there's no, no point in trying to practice shamatha, for example. You won't achieve it. No point in trying to really realize emptiness. You won't do it. These are degenerate times, folks. These are really degenerate times. The most you can hope for now is, well, study well, be ethical, but really don't get your hopes up because these are really degenerate times. You won't be able to achieve the the path even if you try. They're finishing off what the communists started. They're just letting the patient die. So if the heart is trembling, you don't just watch it die. If the heart even stops, you don't just watch. Maybe a little bit of, what's that called? Where you put shock therapy. Maybe a little bit of shock therapy could be good. Don't give up on it until it's decomposing. Some shock therapy. Buddhism is Shila Samadhi Prajna. Buddhism is the six perfections, all six. That includes the fifth one, which is jhana. 
Vajrayana includes state regeneration completion, all the four schools of Tantra. And there's Mahamudra, there's Ochan. So I think these are really critical times. As for a critical patient, you could go either way. Go either way. But those who say, don't even try. Thanks for nothing. Really. You've given up on the patient before the patient's dead. You're not a healer. You're a casual bystander. So let's really preserve Dharma by practicing it. It's only Dalai Lama when he's proposed this center for the practice of Shamadeva Vipassana, not only practice, but achieving Shamadeva Vipassana near Bangalore, and inviting practitioners of Shamadeva Vipassana from all the contemplative traditions of the world. If, if you're intent on that, refining your attention, developing samadhi, but whatever, by whatever name, you're not going to call it samadhi if you're a Sufi or if you're a Taoist and so forth, no problem, I'm not going to quibble over terms here. But if you have that type of technology to really refine the mind and then use that refined mind to explore the nature of reality, welcome, come on in. And you scientists, come on in. Let's join this all collaboratively to explore our inner resources, to fathom the nature of consciousness. That is a celebration. Never say that. He would never say that if he thought this was just going to be one big fiasco. So, so let's practice. Breathe fresh life. And His Holiness, why I raised that was when I spoke with him just a few weeks ago. He didn't quite use the word renaissance, but that's exactly what he's saying, to revitalize, to bring fresh life into. That's what he said. And that is the whole, his vision, his motivation there, to bring fresh life into not only Buddhism, but the contemplative traditions of the world. So it's not something we just read about, the great saints, the siddhas, and so forth and so on in the past. Like, th the further they get away, the more they look like fairy tales. The closer they are, it looks like some of the most sublime science that human beings have ever explored. You know? But a renaissance a renaissance of Buddhism itself, a renaissance of all contemplative traditions, which means a renaissance of all the great religious traditions of the world, so that each one can rediscover its own treasures. So not trying to corral them. You know His Holiness. He's never, never an evangelist. He actually has tries to, to dissuade Westerners from becoming Buddhist. Oh, stay with your own tradition. Stay with your own tradition. If you really have to, okay, then become Buddhist, but otherwise stay home. You know, boy, is that anti-evangelism. So man, if there's, I think he must be the least sectarian man on the planet. And yet his passionate devotion, his faith, his reverence for his own tradition, to couple with deep respect as he meets with Muslim leaders and Christian and Jewish and scientists who are atheists and materialists and treats them all with respect. Looking for the common ground. So a renaissance. So that people who are abiding by, adhering to, holding to their own doctrines, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Taoist, whatever it may be, and their institutions and so forth. Good. Go for it. And they're very different. There's no question about that. Even Theravada Buddhism to Vajrayana Buddhism, they're very different. So no problem. Where's the common ground? And that would be, gosh, that would transform the world. So from my very limited perspective, I see two large looming issues on our horizon right now. And one is now that we are just forced to live together, which for a long time wasn't very true, but in terms of this global village that Muslims just have to encounter Christians, Christians have to encounter Jews, Jews have to encounter Buddhists, Buddhists have to encounter Hindus, Hindus have to, and, and atheists and materialists and so forth, we're all in the same soup now. We can't ignore each other. It's just not possible. Right? We could for a long time. Now we can't. Thank you, airplanes. Thank you, internet, telephones, and all of that. Transportation and communication. So what do we do when the differences are so obvious in our face, right? Really obvious. And they are real, and they're not going to go away. And His Holiness is not trying to make them go away. Let's try to smush all the world's religions into one big schmooze. doesn't make any sense. Nobody's going to do it. It's a ridiculous idea. But while the differences are so obvious in the midst of all of those, 
is there an area of convergence, an area where we could really learn from each other, all by way of experience, sharing experiences. This could really be spectacular. So there's one area. What do we do about the diversity of religions in the world with people so passionately, existentially committed to their own traditions, which very often then leads to contempt, hostility, and then warfare, militancy, violence against everybody who's outside. Happened everywhere on the planet, including in Buddhist countries. I wish we could say we were free. Not true. And then the other one is tradition and modernity, science and spirituality. We can't ignore each other anymore. I think the atheists were kind of playing this as a waiting game. All religion will just die off. It's so stupid. It'll just die off. Marx was quite confident. It'll just die off, die off. No, Marx died off. Marxism is dying off. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Lots of luck. So the atheists, the materialists, and so forth think, oh, just give it a long enough time. Religion will die off. Not in your lifetime, baby. Not happening. So live with it. This is part of reality. Why don't you study reality rather than hoping it will go away? And the reality is these religions of the world are strong. They're there. They're not going away. So what do we do with that? Science and religion generally, very different. Very different. Different methodologies, different beliefs, and so forth. Is there any common ground? We can actually work together rather than just fighting to the death, the creationists against the atheists, this fundamentalist group against that one, and so forth and so on. Terrible history. And in a way, so boring. I mean, what's more boring than a hardcore militant Darwinist with a hardcore militant creationist. Like, dumb and dumber. Really. I don't know why they haven't bored themselves to death. You know, sitting at the table and just both keeling over out of sheer boredom. I don't know why that happened. But there it is. But again, His Holiness is, is, is pointing there just this one symbol, the center that he didn't visit for Bangalore. Invite the scientists, whatever your worldview are. Be, a, be agnostic, an atheist, a materialist, a Hindu, a Jaina, a Buddhist, whatever you may become. Let's look at the experience and find that common ground so that the contemplative traditions of the world can enrich science and scientists can enrich, sharpen up, bring greater integrity, acuity, precision and sophistication to evaluating and understanding contemplative experience. So, if you regard yourself as a follower of his own Dalai Lama, well, there's something really like a North Star that he's presenting to us. Something quite marvelous. Something really healing. Nobody's left on the outside, except people who say, no, no, I'm holding to my dogma and I don't care about the facts. Okay, then, then you don't want to come to the part, we've invited you, but if you're not interested, that's okay. And we're not going to fight you. There it is. Enjoy your day. Let's practice.